0: After sounding the alarm for a month now, it appears that our leaders here in the U.S. have finally caught up with the gravity of the current pandemic. Since many of my guests on the podcast are professionals in emergency management and business continuity and have been going at full steam in response to COVID-19, it has been difficult to schedule interviews lately. And to be clear, so have I. In this episode, once again, the tables are turned. And I'm interviewed by Dean Camaros, a friend, neighbor, and a fan of the podcast. Dean works for a Fortune 500 pharmaceutical company, and I want to thank him for playing host and allowing me to be the guest. We talked about what led up to this current situation, how things are being handled, and what needs to be done in the immediate term, and what we might expect. So my listeners, let's ride the wave in a world. Filled with chaos and a myriad of risks, there is opportunity.
1: You're listening to Riding the Wave, project management for emergency managers, where we discuss how we adapt and rise above those rolling waves of hazards and threats we face and rise to the top. And now, your host, the president of Pinnacle Performance Management, Andrew Boyarski. Andrew, I have a bunch of questions for you, just as a layman, just trying to get my arms around COVID-19. Thank you first for taking the opportunity to answer them. I'm a big fan of the podcast.
0: Well, thank you very much, Dean.
1: So first, what just happened? It seems like the COVID-19 situation accelerated exponentially in the last couple of weeks. It seems like things were pretty normal a couple of weeks ago, and now they are just the opposite. How did this evolve so quickly, and, and why did things happen so fast?
0: We need to look first at the characteristics of COVID-19 and the other contributing factors to understand why this spread so quickly and I think why it took so many people by surprise. Well, first of all, there really are no vaccines and no antiviral drugs known to treat COVID-19 at this time. So there's really no prophylaxis against this and no treatment for it. So it can go unchecked. The current estimate for transmission rate, and I think these are two factors, the reproductive rate is between 2.3 to 2.6. That means that sustained transmission occurs when one sick person on average infects about 2.3 to 2.6 people in a given cycle of illness. It's believed that this disease can be contagious perhaps weeks before, but at least a couple of days before, during, and after. Someone presents symptoms. And so that's the thing that's somewhat insidious about this is that you can show no signs of any disease, no symptoms at all. And you could be spreading it to people, shedding the disease or the illness during that time. You know, we've had also a pretty severe flu season during the wintertime. And I realize it might be mild weather here where we are. However, in other parts of the country, talk about a month, two months ago, we had a pretty severe flu season. So Regular flu might have been masking a lot of the effects of what people might have been experiencing that might have been COVID-19. If you look at the growth curve of COVID-19 cases, with the understanding that it reproduces, it doubles every six days, it starts to grow exponentially within a few weeks. So, you know, we could have in the United States right now millions of cases. So you want to add to that the factor that international travel and Inadequate testing in the United States and in other parts of the world, we don't have adequate disease surveillance, uh, you know, and we have a disease that's spreading largely undetected for probably more than two months in some regions of the world and in areas of the United States.
1: So it really feels like our healthcare authorities were really caught, surprised, and pretty unprepared to talk about diagnostic testing. That's just ramping up now. How did this happen, given that it seems like we had? you know, a good couple of months of warning with what was going on in China, especially China, but Italy and Iran as well. Where were the disconnects in our systems and processes? And it feels like somebody, well, not somebody, the entire system missed something despite plenty of warning.
0: Our systems of infectious disease surveillance largely failed at the international level. And also I'd say at the domestic level, since the mortality rate for this is lower than SARS or Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome, or MERS, Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, both of these different types of coronaviruses, it didn't raise alarm bells right away for the Chinese public authorities. The doctor in China who first raised the alarm, Dr. Li Wenliang, raised the first red flag and he was silenced by the regime. They threatened him, I think they jailed him for a period of time. He was the one who raised the red flag and said, we have a problem here. Had they heeded the call then, it might have been contained. We might have had some time. China tried to keep it quiet. And it wasn't until it started to rage out of control and then hit exponential growth that at the time, it certainly spread beyond the borders of Hubei province undetected and then spread to other parts of China and then to other parts of the world. China has a lot of travels, a lot of foreign travels, a lot of Chinese students that study abroad in areas of Australia, Europe, and the United States, and that's how it arrived here. We also need to recognize that in 2018, the Trump administration fired the government's entire pandemic response chain of command. That includes the permanent epidemic monitoring and command group inside the White House National Security Council and in the Department of Homeland Security, both of which followed any scientific and public health leads of the National Institutes of Health and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. In addition to that, CDC had its global disease surveillance cut by 80% from 49 centers around the world to 10. And lastly, the U.S. government has taken a confrontational approach with the Chinese government, making its cooperation with the United States even less likely.
1: Just to backtrack a little bit, you talked about quite a large number of folks having undetected disease. The number of folks who were diagnosed in China was, I think, in the 80,000, 90,000. What does that translate into the actual number of people who have it in China?
0: It's really tough to tell, Dean. And I think this is one thing that is really a guessing game. And I think this is what makes COVID-19 a moving target in that by the time you detect infectious disease, you don't quite know how many people may have had this for the reason that people who are reasonably healthy, we're talking about children ages zero to 19, younger adults who might be from 20 to 30 or 40 or 50, they might have this show flu signs, get it and be done with it within three or four days, figure it's a flu and be done with it. And that's what they might have. And they might spread it to other people. So we don't have a true figure for what we would call the denominator in this situation, right? The numerator would be the number of mortality cases, The denominator being the number of people who are actually infected with this. That true number is somewhat something that we do know what the infected case rate of those people that have been diagnosed with it specifically, but we don't know the number of undetected cases that are out there.
1: So what are we looking at the next couple of weeks and months here in the United States? If we look at some of the other countries, what are we looking at here in the United States over the next couple of weeks and months?
0: If we're looking at the current growth curve, and there's a lot of data out there that has shown what that looks like. And if you think about exponential growth, right, when you get to what we often call that hockey stick, right? So it's slow, slow growth, and then suddenly it just bursts up and then it rises from there. We're at that point. We've been at that inflection point for about the last week. And we've seen in terms of the testing, we're seeing those numbers of infected and diagnosed cases double pretty much from day to day or maybe once every two days. Now we're seeing that's gonna continue to rise. And I think if we look at this going out a week or two, we could see millions of cases of COVID-19 nationally.
1: A lot has changed over the last week or so. And actually, it seems like more of the government being behind a lot of public and private institutions shutting down. First, just your thoughts on that. The government seems to be behind many of the private organizations college institutions, the MBA, the MLB, things like that. So just to comment on that, the second part of that is, are we doing enough? Are we finally where we need to be?
0: I don't think that we're where we need to be. And I think that the messaging was muddled over the last month from the presidential administration through to other public health officials at that level. It should have been a lot more serious. It should have been consistent. In emergency management, we call it a single overarching Communication objective. And in a crisis situation, in an emergency, it needs to be clear, it needs to be consistent, and it needs to be distributed widely at all different levels from federal to state to local and from multiple channels from political leaders. This is what you need to do and this is what you need to follow. We were told at one point that there's a low likelihood that you're going to get this. When all the public health officials and infectious disease experts have been saying that the infection rate could be as high as 70% in the United States over the next year. Now, that's not low probability. That is a high probability that you will get this illness if it's unchecked. The message should have been very clearly and emphatically, this is a dangerous illness. We need to protect those people that are most vulnerable. And these are the things that we need to do. And they may be uncomfortable. It may be bitter medicine for us to take. But we need to do it to lower that mortality rate and to lower that curve, that growth curve, so we flatten it as what's being propagated out there in terms of the messaging. My belief is at this point, one of the things that we need to do is really get that message out clearly and unequivocally that people need to self-quarantine. Even if they're healthy, they need to self-quarantine. If they're an essential staff member, essential, critical to our infrastructure, whether it's food production, whether it's important and essential transportation, whether that's part of the energy sector for the country to be running. And that could be police, fire, EMS, and other roles. Those people should be allowed to go and do what they need to do and protect themselves with proper protective equipment and so forth. Of course, healthcare workers, for those people that are non-essential personnel who can work remotely or work from home, they need to be able to do that. And we should support people to do that. New York City is putting in place those things that need to happen, but it should have happened a lot quicker and a lot sooner to prevent the spread of this disease.
1: Let me ask a follow up. It's probably an obvious question to you, but sometimes obvious questions are good to ask. Why do people need to self quarantine? What should folks listening, if you had to tell your audience why they should be self quarantining, what would you say?
0: Well, with a transmission rate that's that high, if I get this disease and I have it and I'm not showing symptoms, and i walk out of my home there are countless opportunities for me to be able to spread it i take a letter for example a simple letter and i go and post it it's picked up by a mail carrier covid-19 has shown that it could survive on surfaces for up to a couple of days and so somebody picking up that piece of mail who's unprotected might be able to get it even if they have gloves on they accidentally rub their forehead and then later on you know they take off their gloves and then they rub their forehead And they rub their eye, or it can quickly permeate and get into, and they can become infected. And as I said, this can be spread pretty rapidly. And then for people who are reasonably healthy, who are not immunocompromised, it may not be a problem. For people who are 60 years or older, who may be immunocompromised, it does present a higher mortality. It even presents a higher mortality for people who are younger. And what's important for us to know is number one, that's a concern. Number two, if we get sick and we need urgent medical care, there's an incapacity or a lack of capacity in the medical care system right now. We don't have enough respirators. We don't have enough PPE or personal protective equipment. We don't have enough ventilators for people to be put on ventilators if they need help with assisted breathing. So someone becoming acutely ill puts themselves at risk by not having adequate Healthcare available to them, and this puts great strain. We can see this going on right now in northern Italy. That system is completely overwhelmed. Doctors are exhausted. They don't have enough hospital beds. They've had to set up makeshift triage and care centers for those who are more minor cases. And they're seeing an extremely high mortality rate among those people who are infected. So these are the reasons why, and what we see in Italy can be happening here fairly soon, within the next week or two. So these measures are ones that we need to take in all communities nationally in the United States.
1: Let me ask you another kind of basic question, but I think these basic questions are good to answer. If you're saying that ultimately 70% of people are gonna get this, well, why not just forget it? If we're all gonna get it eventually, why is it so important to self-quarantine now? If we're all gonna get this eventually, why bother?
0: That's a good question. It goes back to, if you look at the research, that in a pandemic, the most serious thing that happens, not only the mortality rate, but that the healthcare system becomes easily overwhelmed by the number of people that need admission into hospitals. And those might be people that are presenting symptoms who are not infected, who are the worried well. I mean, we're not talking about just COVID-19, but there's a regular flow of people that go into emergency rooms for just ordinary accidents, they break a leg or, you know, they get sick with something else or they need treatment for cancer. So if we don't have enough capacity for them, enough beds and treatment and things like that, then those people suffer as a result. So the whole idea is that you want to flatten that curve. So you spread the number of cases out over a period of time so that that curve isn't overwhelming at the beginning, like basically like a tsunami, if you will.
1: So it's like a bolus, right? You want to prevent the bolus or a bottleneck. You want to prevent that bolus of people from hitting the healthcare system all at once. That's correct?
0: Yeah. And again, as I said before, if you look at all the factors, we don't have enough personal protective equipment. We don't have enough things like respirators. We don't have enough hospital beds in the New York City area. Let me just stop on this point and give you a quick example. In New York City, there are approximately 26,000 hospital beds. At any one time, about 60% of those beds are typically occupied, that leaves another 40%, which is roughly about 10,000 beds. If the number of people are infected with COVID-19 in the next month or two with a significant number of elderly, we'd be looking at hundreds of thousands of people who are ill and in severely in need of hospitalization. 10,000 beds is not going to cut it for hundreds of thousands of cases.
1: DC. Given the the kind of the the movement in in this country in the last week or so, any reasons for optimism? Any reasons you think we might be able to avoid some of what we're seeing in places like Italy?
0: I do see some encouraging signs. I see that some leaders have taken action quickly and decisively to close schools and non-essential businesses. These acts are being taken now. I think we need to move faster to facilitate an expansion of medical triage and to support the response with more medical staff, with more equipment with more consumables, with medications, and also to add mobile and ad hoc facilities. And we really need to ramp up production of PPE and supplies for those people. But I'm also heartened by the social connections that people have established. I mean, people are really reaching out to one another. If it's not in person, because most folks are under self-quarantine, they're reaching out digitally. They're reaching out across social media. They're reaching out face-to-face using video conferences and things like that. So it's really important that people do establish and keep those social connections alive and not sequester themselves as a hermit. I think those are really, really positive things that people can do to get by. And I also see a lot of people going for walks and running early in the mornings, keeping those social distances that they need to, but really getting more exercise, reconnecting with their family members. Those are all very positive things.
1: I wanted to ask you that. Do you think that folks are taking social distancing seriously? I feel like in South Orange and Maplewood, I see some really great things around that and some things that maybe are not so great. What is your take on some of what you're hearing and seeing both in the media, both you know, from your friends and family? Are people responding as they should regarding keeping a safe distance?
0: No, I think the messaging was mixed over the past weeks. As of this past weekend, it looked like it was business as usual with people going out to bars and restaurants, walking around in public, going to events. This was happening. I saw these pictures in Washington, D.C., to Philadelphia, to New York City, and I was shocked by it, you know, knowing what I know and knowing what needed to be put in place. That should have stopped weeks ago. Now, social distancing measures are being firmly put in place. And this is something that needs to be widespread nationally. Social distancing and quarantines need to be put in place in order to keep people safe and healthy. So the first answer to that is no, I haven't seen that before, but it's improving now going forward. And it needs to continue to be very vigilantly enforced throughout the United States.
1: What can folks do to stay informed? The flurry of information and sources out there are really can be really overwhelming. Are there sources of information that you think people should be really steering their attention towards instead of going, let's say, CNN or other things? Where should people go?
0: I would say that there is traditional media that's good to follow. If you want to go to trusted sources of public health officials and people that have solid epidemiological data, the Centers for Disease Control would be the first one that I would go to. The World Health Organization, I think those two are going to be consistent with one another in the communication that they provide out there. They may differ in the format that they provide it, but it'll be largely very similar. The National Institutes of Health also provides good data. The Johns Hopkins School of Public Health provides very good information on COVID-19. They have a great dashboard that they put together of the current infected cases that have been reported. Full disclosure that I graduated from Johns Hopkins University. So that's not necessarily a plug for them, but certainly they do provide a lot of good data. So those are the sources that I would go to. I would avoid social media. I would avoid email threads that are provided to you that someone sends that professes the latest cure that's going to help deal with the effects of this. Again, rely on the trusted and true public health sites for information on prevention, on detection on guidance on what you should do and what you should follow.
1: I know you don't have a crystal ball, but let's see if you could predict for folks, when do we expect this bull is to hit? How long do you think we're going to be under this self-quarantine for? When do you think? I mean, I'm sure many people are listening. When can my kids go back to school? I know I'd like to know that. How do you see this playing out over the weeks and months?
0: If you look at any past pandemics as examples, the first thing is, what is that first peak and when is likely to subside? We're likely to see that overwhelming demand on healthcare hit in the next, I would say, start to hit in the next week to two weeks. If we look again, based upon the data that's there, the data indicates right now around 13 days out from where we would look similar to Italy on a per capita basis. Now that's two weeks. It's not a lot of time. It may be shorter, maybe longer. We hope based upon current measures, we can push it out a little bit. But a lot of that's going to be regionally or locally based in terms of that surge of demand. In terms of how long this is likely to last, I think that we're looking at something that's likely to take place at least in this early wave, about two months. And the other thing to understand here that pandemics don't just run as one wave when we're done. Oftentimes, they'll subside for a period of time, perhaps during the summer as the weather warms up and as people's health starts to improve and things like that. But there will be some persistent transmission and persistent cases that will go on. And then we'll see a rise, come back, a resurgence perhaps in the fall. And that's what happened with the great pandemic of 1918-19. And the reason I say 1918 and 1919 is that we often hear of it referred to as the great pandemic of 1918 or the Spanish influenza. It became worse, and it had its greatest mortality impacts during the nineteen nineteen year because it did resurge in the fall. It really decimated the population at that time. It did in nineteen eighteen as well, but some containment was put in place. It was lifted initially, thinking that everything would be fine, and then you know as it moved around the globe to colder climates, came back. That's when it had its further impact. We could see that happening again. What we know now is, as I said before, we still don't have. A vaccine against this. A vaccine is likely not to be available for at least a year to a year and a half. So, we're looking at something we're going to be living with for a period of time until we can figure out how to contain it and how to deal with it.
1: I'll ask you for some final thoughts, but I just want your audience to know that you and I are doing this using technology. We're using Zoom and a microphone. So, we are socially distanced. So, we're practicing what we preach here, which is great. I just wonder if you had any final thoughts for your group before we close out the session.
0: The thing to take away is, number one, this is not going to be something that we are going to be finished with in a couple of weeks. We are going to be dealing with this for a significant period of time to stay alert and to monitor what's going on. And also to not lose hope. It's not going to be something that we are going to be defeated by. We will survive this. We will pull together. It will be a difficult time. And I think it's a time and an opportunity for us to recalibrate what the essentials are and what's important in our lives. We often get caught up in, you know, the latest fad or the latest craze and things like that. And it's important to really reflect on the key needs that we have to hold those people that are close to us, closer to ourselves, to reach out and to really show that we care. And part of that is following the guidance that's provided to us by public health experts, by socially distancing, and making sure that our neighbors know that to be there for our neighbors in whatever way we need to. And that may mean going shopping and picking something up for somebody where it's safe in a safe manner to do that so that they can get by. And that means some of our elderly neighbors, some of our neighbors who may be suffering from some health issues but also to get the word out and make sure that people know and understand and, you know, let people know in a polite way if they're doing something that's risky. And I see my kids do that from time to time to tell them and to remind them, you know, in a loving way, hey, we need to keep our distance because we need to make sure everybody's safe, both themselves and the people that they might be coming in contact with.
1: I really learned a lot, Andrew. So thank you for giving me the opportunity to ask you some of these questions. I appreciate it.
0: It's been a pleasure, Dean, and I want to thank you for conducting the interview. You may find out more information at www.pinnacleperformancemanagement, all one word, dot com. At Riding the Wave, we like to get your feedback, and you may contact me directly at my email address, andrew at pinnacleperformancemanagement, one word, dot com. Thanks for listening, and come back soon for our next podcast.
1: You've been listening to Riding the Wave, hosted by Andrew Boyarski, President of Pinnacle Performance Management and Clinical Associate Professor in Emergency and Project Management at NYU and John Jay College.
0: All thoughts are his own.